Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I just burped and swallowed it. I did. <laughs> I had just taken a sip of wine, like, right before I I know. I I, I watched it happen, and I was like, I could let this slide, or I could let all of our listeners know that you burped and swallowed it so you could get through the tagline. (laughs) That I was in moderate gastrointestinal distress. Well, to be fair, uh, you were sacrificing what could have been a very satisfying burp to get through the tagline for our loyal listeners. I was, so you're welcome, loyal (laughs) listeners. Um, I'm I'm gonna before we continue do that real quick because oh. I I heard you kick that cord earlier and it made a horrifying sound. Oh, um, that's what happens when we record from our bed. Yep. <laughs> so I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole a couple of days ago. Um, yes, you did. But this is this is this was a weird one. Um, so I went down a Wikipedia <laughs> rabbit hole he that began that began with me reading a couple of articles on the. Um, the sexist history of pockets in clothing. Wait, you didn't even tell me about no, this. No, I didn't. This is this is new. <laughs> this is new information. That's why I'm sharing. Okay. Bring um, it. So uh, it, it, that's where it started, okay. um, which was interesting enough um, because that is some cool information. It's, it's really interesting stuff. But then I learned that apparently there was a significant period of time when um, beer pockets were sewn into the inside of jackets and vests. Beer? Like B-E-E-R? Beer. Beer. Like Like the beverage. Okay. And these were were pockets sewn into jackets that were designed to be the right size to fit bottles. (laughs) Bottles of beer. So why did this stop? These were a thing that went out of style with Prohibition. Ah, fucking Prohibition, man. Um, (laughs) Rude. Yeah. And I, like, I'm having trouble finding, um massive amounts of information on it, but I thought that was super interesting. Well, I, guess I came it... across the term beer pocket. I was like, what the hell's a beer pocket? And now they are now coming out with uh, hoodies that have beer pockets, which is a small beer bottle size pocket in like the front of hoodies. <laughs> so that the beer bottle, you can like, you can drink it and then I set mean, it right there in the they pocket. They make like wine, they make beer helmets and wine bras. Have you heard of wine bras? Oh yeah. <laughs> So as I sip this wine right here, um, yeah, I could have a bra on that had all the wine in it if I so chose. So that, you know what? I love America sometimes. You know, we're in a dumpster fire right now, but then I hear about beer pockets and I go, somebody invented that and it became a thing and that's fun. Sometimes we do things okay. We got wine bras and beer pockets coming back on the rise. So whoop-de-frickin'-do. So if you're upset at the world right now, order a wine brawl and uh, sew a beer pocket into your hoodie. Yeah. <laughs> you won't regret it. You won't. That's fun. I love a good uh, wiki dive. Yeah, you should You should take up, if you don't already know how to sew, if you already know how to sew, you should start a business making jackets and vests for people that have beer pockets sewn into them. Because everyone needs a way to make some more money right now. And if you don't already sew, you should take up sewing. So that you can start a business selling jackets with beer pockets sewn into them. Speaking of starting a business and making money right now, you could become a patron of... <laughs> Jesus. 
He loves my segues, segues, segues. I say segues because of my podcast, so I totally stole that from from them. So sorry, but not sorry. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, we are uh, recording this on our bed in our apartment, and if you'd like, if you like what you're listening to. Um, we'd love uh, to have you as a patron. You can join for as little as two dollars and get some cool, fun things. Yeah. But other than that, get, just, get some fun, get some fun swag. Money and and remember <laughs> that um, when we get one thousand patrons, right. I will be getting a tattoo that says "In Agatha We Trust." That is still out there on the table. We're Although at the seven. current at our current rate of new. Uh, patrons, I believe I'll be getting that tattoo somewhere around my 83rd birthday. I mean, that's that's hot. <laughs> I'm just imagining 83-year-old Ken, like, with a, like, walker, but still wearing his Spartan, like, race t-shirts, walking into a tattoo parlor and being like, all right, all it's right, happened. here it is. <laughs> Can you imagine? In Agatha, we trust. Who's Agatha? Is that your grandma's name or something? Don't ask questions, young man. <laughs> Give me my tattoo. And then I hit him with my walker. Yep. Uh, and then because that's um, what fifty years <laughs> in the future, uh, the tattoo is essentially screen printed on. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> tattoos are going to be, I can't even imagine. Like, I love tattoos. I have to. And I would have more if they were easier and less <laughs> expensive. So, fuck, yeah, that's great. Um, but, yeah, become a patron if you want. Go to uh, patreon.com slash 5050artsproduction, which is the company that hosts our podcast that we also run. So, if you're new. Hi. So, because every episode of Campfire Classics is bound to be somebody's first episode of Campfire Classics. Welcome welcome to our new listener. I'm going to guess at this point, maybe there's one person who is listening to this as their first episode. Howdy. So, hi to you. I'm Heather. Thank you so much for joining us. What we do here is uh, read stories from classic authors and um, make fun of how antiquated the language is and sometimes comment on the uh, misogyny and racism innate in old writings. But, like, we're funny about it. <laughs> well, part of the funny comes <laughs> but, from the fact that but you But not don't... terrible, like I just made it sound. Part of the funny, let's be honest, comes from the fact that neither one of us knows what story we're about to read. So we don't prepare, and therefore we don't know what's going to happen. So you are... You are coming along on the journey with us, and if we do encounter said um, old language and and or offensive language, we we deal with it as it comes. So, yep. welcome to our welcome to our campfire journey. Uh, so, what what am I reading today? All tonight? right, so it's happening. So, speaking of what we do, let's do it. So, I'm getting to pick a pick, for uh, a story for Ken today. And um, Ken recently uh, reached out on a couple of Facebook groups um, because we have yet to have any of, well, many, we've actually had a couple listeners uh, suggest, like Lauren and uh, Craig and um, uh, O'Henry was... Lorna. Lorna. So love them. We love when people make suggestions because then we get to learn and like expand our knowledge. So Ken did a couple posts on like uh, literature Facebook groups. Some snooty literary groups. Snooty literary groups. And by snooty, I mean they have hilarious memes and stuff on them. So 
But then they also know their literature. So he reached out on uh, a, a group called Pretentious Literature and Language Elitists, which I was like, that's just a great group. Thank you to my new friends on Facebook. And um, I want to give a shout out to Ed Oppenheimer, who suggested Ambrose Bierce. That's B, not P. So Ambrose Bierce, The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. So that's what you're going to read today. Okay. So, uh, Ed Oppenheimer, we don't know you, but you reached out and suggested this, and uh, we love you for that. But thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. So we hope we uh, do it justice. So a little bit of Ambrose Gwinnett Beers. Gwinnett. Yes. As, first of all, he has a glorious mustache. Excellent. I opened the Wikipedia page and I was like, okay. The first well, thing you see is a mustache. I saw a glorious mustache and I went, well, there it is. Um, he was born June 24th, 1842. And they don't quite know when he was, when he died. <laughs> we'll get to that. Is he a vampire? Is he still alive? He's behind you right now. Ah! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure I just made the mic clip real hard. Hey, I mean, if you did it, not me, that's a first. <laughs> All right. So he was an American short story writer, journalist, poet, and Civil War veteran for the Union soldiers. So his book, The Devil's Dictionary, was named one of uh, the 100 greatest masterpieces of American literature by American Revolution Bicentennial Administration. <laughs> that All was right. a lot of big words. Um, so basically, he was great. Um, he was very versatile. As I said, he like was did lots of things. He was a very influential, influential journalist. Uh, he was... A uh, pioneering writer in realist fiction. His horror writing has been ranked alongside Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, good. So this is going to be a light little ditty that yeah, we're reading. Yeah, he, he, he writes light things. Uh, but he's also well known as one of the greatest satirists in America and uh, takes his place with like Swift and Voltaire. Uh Also, he wrote war stories because he was a soldier in the Civil War. Oh, hi, kitty. Line, Lina is very excited about this story. Do you want to go in the closet? Oh, no. Here, come on. I'll open the closet for you. There you go. <laughs> That's Lina, the kitty. She she likes to make appearances. Uh, let's see. Uh, yes, so he wrote about the Civil War quite a bit. He fought uh, in the 9th Indiana Infantry and participated in operations in Western Virginia. So he was present in a lot of battles and actually like went up in the ranks really fast and had the support of some like major generals who supported his application for admission to West Point. And they were convinced he was gonna be like the like with distinction graduate from West Point. And then he uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury in the Battle of Kennesaw. Kennesaw. Sorry, Dad. My dad is, like, obsessed with Civil War like, history. He's going to be like, Heather Lawler. Um, Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. And he spent the rest of the summer on furlough. So he uh, actually had issues with that for the rest of his life. Like, he suf suffered from fainting spells and irritability and whatnot because he had... Because he got, got shot in the head. In the I'd be irritable, yeah, too. Yeah, so... Uh, 
So, surprisingly, he was an avowed agnostic and strongly rejected the divinity of Christ. So, um, gee, I, I think when you get, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Um, so, he, we don't know how he died. So, he didn't die then, and he had a very long life. And about 71, so this is like, that's a long life at this time. When he was about 71. When he was 71. Okay. Uh, he crossed into Mexico. So, he, like, went across the border um, to join Pancho Villa's revolutionaries in the Mexican Revolution. Okay. <laughs> in a letter to his niece, Laura, Bierce wrote, quote, Goodbye. If you hear of my being stood up against a Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think that is a pretty good way to depart this life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs to be a gringo in Mexico. Ah, that is euthanasia. <laughs> Well, at least he had a sense of humor about it. Yeah, he did. And he, he was like, you know what? I fought in one more. I'm going to go fight another one and try and help people out. going to go fight so, alongside Pancho Villa. So Wait, he, did he fight with or against Pancho Villa during the revolution? To join Pancho Villa. Join Pancho Villa. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, and then he wrote, guess it doesn't matter much. Adios, Ambrose. <laughs> <laughs> So that was his final letter was dated December 26, 1913. So he made it at least that long. He made it at least that long. And then he was never heard from again. And it actually is like a huge, like, still to this day, no one knows what happened to him, when he died, where he died. Like, he could still be alive and be a vampire. We don't know. Um it was uh, the novel The Old Gringo by Carlos Fuentes is a fictionalized treatment of Bierce's disappearance. Okay. 1913. So he probably survived the revolution and joined up and fought during World War I. Uh, and <laughs> then... <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> and he's still alive today and he's a vampire. And then possibly got picked up by Marty and Doc in the time machine... That's he's he's in uh, Back to the Future Three on the train because then he went backwards again. Yeah, he's like, ooh, I'd like to see where he became. I... He became the conductor on the on the train, on the train in, in Back to the, the Future, Future Three. Three. We solved it, y'all. Sorry, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so this story, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, is my last little bit. Okay, um, has been described as one of the most famous and frequently anthologized stories in American literature. Huh. Uh, and there are at least three films have been made about this. A silent film version called The Bridge, which was made in 1929. A French version called... Mm-mm, directed by Robert Errico. I'm going to let you read that because you might be able to pronounce it. That was released in 1942. I'll just edit in my pronunciation there over. There it is. Just yeah. edit it in, yeah. And there's a black and white film that faithfully recounts the original narrative. Um, it aired in 1964. And there is also an episode of The Twilight Zone called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Huh. So uh, it's had a lot of, uh, and there's been a radio programs, all these other things that have been inspired by this story. All right. And that's what you're going to read today. Excellent. I'm excited. So, Ed, this one uh, is going out to the pretentious literature and language elitists on Facebook and Ed Oppenheimer. Let's start the fire and read this.
An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water 20 feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack uh, fell to the level of his knees. Oh, what? Is they gonna hang him? That's what it seems like. Okay, first of all, the first person I envisioned, like, standing over a bridge, like, thinking they're gonna dive in is Harrison Ford. I don't know why. All right. <laughs> I've already cast Harrison Ford in this. Like, maybe it's because I saw <laughs> The Fugitive as a kid, like, and now I'm imagining. Like, <laughs> have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah, he jumps off a bridge yep. at one point that was into just, like the river. So that was just a that was a uh, uh, that was a that was a way a back. A, that was a hell of a leap. That, that was, was a hell of a uh, connection. I thank you, Harrison Ford, for having such an effect on my life. <laughs> All right, okay, continue. Some loose boards laid upon the sleepers supporting the metals of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners. Oh man! Two private soldiers of the Federal Army directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It's not an ejaculate. Come on. You're a 12-year-old. I am a 12-year-old, and I'm trying. This, this, this story has started out very dark and, like, menacing, and you said the word erect, and I got, like, <laughs> it was uncomfortable, and it got it made them erect as they stood on the bridge. So, I don't know. I don't know what these weird soldiers are into. I mean. Uh, <laughs> you love it. God, give me strength. <laughs> It did not appear to be the duty of these two... Duty. Duty. (laughs) (laughs) It did not appear to be the duty of these two men... Does it make it better or worse with a liquid you? Duty. I think it makes it worse. It's like duty. It did not appear to be the job of these two men (laughs) to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into the forest for a hundred yards, then curving was lost to view. Doubtless, there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle acclivity. Look up acclivity. Acclivity? A gentle acclivity topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks. Give it to me, spell it. A-C-C-L-I-V-I-T-Y, acclivity. Acclivity, an upward slope. That's it. It's a hill. Yeah, it's Don't a hill. Don't be a dick, just call it a hill. <laughs> the other... It is from, it is early 17th century from Latin acclivitas. <laughs> yeah. The other bank of the stream was open ground. 
a gentle acclivity topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks loopholed for rifles with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. So this is a fortification. Yeah. Midway of the slope between the bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the (laughs) barrels... Oh, this one's going to be rough, isn't it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Again, it's, it seems... It's the it's, tension. It's very intense, and you keep saying words that make me think of other things. Then I have to giggle, because I'm trying to relieve the tension. Let's, let's enjoy the tension. <laughs> Go for it. The barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right, excepting a group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinate, subordinates, I know, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. So they don't say adios, amigo. <laughs> so they don't say adios, Ambrose. <laughs> adios, Ambrose. <laughs> the man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, (laughs) but no whiskers. What? So he had a mustache and a beard, but nothing on the side. So a goatee. So a goatee or a, a, um, what's it called, a Van Dyke or something like that. (laughs) I've never heard it called a Van Dyke. Really? No. Look up Van Dyke. I'm looking up Van Dyke. Pull up a picture. (laughs) Oh, and the first person that came up is Pierce Brosnan, which is funny (laughs) because it's uh, Ambrose Ambrose Pierce. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Yep. Love it. Okay. Got it. His eyes were large and dark and had a kindly expression, which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not included. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. (laughs) The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. Oh my God. 
the end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man would go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. <laughs> God, what a lame river to be hung above. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> he closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. Aww. The water touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was a sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion, like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience, and he knew not why, apprehension. Is it an owl? Is this a Twin Peaks episode? <laughs> <laughs> a metallic owl? It's the a owls. Owl at Owl Creek. <laughs> the owls aren't really owls. I mean, beware the owls. Like, I mean, are they really owls in that? We never found out. We still have to watch the movie. We still have to figure this out. This does sound coming. like something David Lynch would film. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if he had if he's responsible for one of the movie versions. <laughs> David Lynch? If you're listening. Cast I'm us. 35. <laughs> Cast us. <laughs> its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with, I already read this. Yeah, you did. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ears like the trust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. Ooh. It's Captain Hook! <laughs> he unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets, then swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invader's farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here been set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. 
Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Oh, now we get the backstory. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. That's the guy who they're going to hang? Uh, presumably. Sweet. Hang him. <laughs> Story done. <laughs> Sorry. I mean... I was all like, oh, this poor guy. Yeah, fuck this guy. fucking slave owner secessionist? Nah, fuck him. Yeah. (laughs) Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with the gallant army, which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth. (laughs) And he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in aid of the South. No adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. Okay, okay, this guy's like sitting there (laughs) with his fucking slaves in the South being like, oh, I would fight if they'd ask me, but like, That'll come eventually. I'm just going to hang out here and, like, live on my plantation and own human beings and... Do what I can to help the war effort. Oh, I'm helping the South. If he ever talks, please give him, like, a, like, that accent. Well, (laughs) he he is... He is a Southern plantation owner. Yeah, he is... He's he's freaking Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. (laughs) I thought he was Harrison Ford. No, he is not Harrison Ford anymore. (laughs) No, he is now Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. Go. Done. All right. (laughs) One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting... (laughs) And his name's Farquhar. It's like Lord Farquaad. Yeah, from fucking Shrek. So, he's Leonardo DiCaprio, but he's only three feet tall. He's Leonardo DiCaprio from Django Unchained, as played by a three-foot-tall John Lithgow. Fan-fucking-tastic. Done. Find that actor. We're doing this movie. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance of his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroads, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge... Put it foreshadowing, in... but not really because he put this afterwards. But yeah, reshadowing. Re- I think it's just back. shadowing. Recall. I think it's just shadowing. Total recall. Isn't that a, that's a Harrison Ford that... movie, isn't it? Total recall. I think that's. I think that's, that's like an Stephen Arnold Schwarzenegger Skull? movie. The nineties. That's an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, movie. I mean, Harrison Ford in the nineties did a lot of like those kinds of movies, and yeah. you're like, why'd they cast Harrison Ford? Because he's a badass. Because he can make cool faces. He gets very intense. Anyway. Harrison Ford should play Ambrose Bierce. 
Oh. And he's get he's like around that age he's, now when he disappears. He's getting he's getting old enough to play Ambrose Beers when, when he, he crosses wrote, Adios, over. Adios, Ambrose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like Ambrose Beers was basically um, Indiana Jones meets Han Solo anyway. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of living it. Oh, but I, I a, left a bunch of stuff out. But too. with a little bit of brain damage. Lo- what next story we read? I'll give you some more. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The Commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Well, this bitch is going to go up there and do stupid stuff. About 30 miles? Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and a student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. Student of hanging? Yes. You want to look up what that phrase actually means? I'm assuming it... Does that mean he's hung people? I don't know. I hate him. (laughs) So, when you Google the phrase student of hanging, the first thing to come up is Peyton Farquhar. (laughs) Oh, shit! (laughs) He has a, like, website. Yeah. It says, uh, he calls himself a student of hanging, seeming to imply that he thinks he can commit the crime and still avoid the punishment. Oh, Suppose a man, a civilian, and a student of hanging should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like toe, uh, like tow. Tow. Uh, I believe it's. I got a, it. I'm at, I'm assuming it's like. Uh, I think it's a kind of candle wax. T. O W. Oh, I'm thinking of tallow. Tallow is a kind of wax. I don't know. Would burn like tow. Tow, a motor vehicle or boat pole. Um, an act of towing. Oh, here we go. A short tau noun, this is the second definition for it, so it's not that it's less used. Um, short or broken fiber as a flax hemp or synthetic material uh, that is used especially for yarn, twine, or stuffing. Loose, essentially untwisted strand of synthetic fibers. Great. T O W. You thought you were towing a car, but nope. You nope, you're just- starting a fire. You're starting a fire or anyway, your your wheat knitting. It is uh, it is now dry and would burn like a word that I'm not going to try to pronounce, even though it's only three letters and should be real simple. <laughs> the lady had now brought the water which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. Oh, damn! They set him up. Yep. 
As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state, he was awakened, ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid period... Ooh, periodicity. Periodicity. Periodicity? Um, I mean, you can figure out what it means. It's yeah, just a hard word to figure context, out how to pronounce. Yeah. And to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud, of which he was now merely the fiery heart, without material substance. He swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then, all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with a noise of a loud plash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. Oh, no! There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. Uh. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river. <laughs> the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. <laughs> to be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. That is not fair. Elo, let's talk about fair Farquaad. <laughs> He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feat of a juggler without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort, what magnificent, what superhuman strength. Ah, that was a fine endeavor, bravo. The cord fell away. His arms parted and floated upward. I His... feel like the Union soldiers did all this to him, like, on purpose. Like, <laughs> they, like, tightened the rope so it would start to hurt him, but they knew he'd fall, and then he'd be, had, like, drunk, done in the river, and they knew that they tied the rope just enough that it would fall apart just so they could shoot him in the freaking face! This is all just psychological torture. <laughs> I love it. Do it. That's, 
Yes, that's how I feel. I got words. I got words for the Confederate flag. That's all I got to say. And that's another episode. (laughs) He watched them with a new interest as first one, then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back. Put it back. He thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish. But his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draft of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Preternaturally. It's like predator, like preternaturally. Love that word. Beyond what is normal or natural. All right. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived, his senses. Mm -hmm. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass. Is he on LSD? <laughs> it's like natural... Well, I mean... There was, like, those experiments that, like, if you, like, get close to death, what's the, like, what's the, uh, there's a chemical that's released in you, like, before you die. That makes you hallucinate? No, it's, there's actually a drug people take, and it's really fucked up, and I, like, I've never, like, I don't know anybody. Are are you sure that you are not thinking of a Harrison Ford movie? (laughs) Harrison, have you done this movie? Uh, there's a drug. No, it's like drug that is the chemical DMT. It's called DMT. Yeah. I like, I, 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 yeah. A DMT trip feels like you're dying. On the list of drugs I want to take, one that makes me feel like I'm dying is not on the list. I, I, I saw like a fucking like documentary about it and I was like, why would anybody do that? No, thank you. I'm like, no, 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 thank you. <laughs> no. But yeah, no, that's, I'm like, so he's basically on actual, like, because he had all these almost deaths, so he's yeah. probably got all that adrenaline going through. The humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs like oars which had lifted their boat, all these made audible music. 
A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface, facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners, they were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, ah! but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly, he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. Oh, damn! He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking into the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Attention, company! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! Farquhar dived. Dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dulled thunder of the volley and, rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. Oh, it was shit. uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly further downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. 
The officer, he reasoned, will not make that Martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling plash within two yards of him was followed by a loud, rushing sound diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. Oh, shit! Here comes, here comes the boom boom. They're just trying to sink him now. Yeah. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. (laughs) The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly, he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him (laughs) giddy and sick. Sometimes gyration makes you giddy and sick at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't make you sick. If your gyrations are making you sick, there's probably something else going on. Sometimes, like, you get, it's like the nerves, and like, you know, gyrate. (laughs) I I don't know, keep going. (laughs) He's going to die. He's going to die. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. Uh-oh. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. Baby, you ain't out of the... You're not in the clear yet. Uh-uh, uh-uh, sweetheart. Nope. Uh-uh, Leo. It's only gonna get worse. On, Sorry, Leo. my dude. Sorry, just because you're on the back of the boat when it sinks, you still got to get on that door. It's not going to happen. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of Aeolian harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape, was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and rattle of grape shot among the 
branches high above his head roused him from his dream. That's what I'm talking about. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There yes, because something... you never left your damn house, bitch. You made everyone else do your work for you. Welcome to the real world. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall, he was fatigued, footsore, famishing. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last, he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. <laughs> Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was Australia? sure. <laughs> he fell straight through the planet. Through the planet. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, he found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up to the wide walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. I Hi folks, 
Ken jumping in here, just gonna let you know what's going on. We got to about two paragraphs away from the ending of this book, and Heather jumped in, having figured out the ending, uh, very happily exclaimed, Wait, is he dead? And we proceeded to explain what we thought the ending would be before reading it. So I decided to edit that part out, so that if you didn't see what was coming, we wouldn't spoil it for you. But now I'm going to punch it back in for you here. So enjoy the original take of the ending. The roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking. For now, he <laughs> sees another scene. Perhaps he Has he has... been dead the whole time? But he's been dead the whole time. This is all like... His, like, moment before. Yes. That's what this is. I, I don't know, but, like... Well, because, uh, remember earlier, he heard the the second hand yeah. of oh. his watch yeah. slowing down. So it's all, like, a, it's, like, you see your this live is, flash before this your is eyes. All this, happening is in, this is all happening in between the last two. Oh, no, did I just ruin the end? Go, 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 go. Oh, shit. I do this in movies sometimes. <laughs> People hate me. <laughs> For now, he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up to the wide walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. I The end. Oh, damn. <laughs> oh, my God. I called it. I'm sorry. I Maybe we should edit that out, but maybe not. <laughs> I, I, like... You called it 45 seconds before 45 seconds before, but, like, it was when he was, like, strange stars, and, like, things just got weirder and weirder. I'm like, oh, this isn't actually happening. This is in his, his brain right now. He's trying to, like... Some people, like, they say their life flashes before their eyes, but also, like, when you're in, like, a situation like that, you're like, it's your escape. Like, it's like, how would you get out of this yep. flashes? And it's, nope, bye! <laughs> sorry, dude. You know, um, I, I am sorry, not sorry about you. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. You were fighting on the wrong side of the war. You shouldn't have gone and blown up, tried to blow up the bridge. Yeah, I, I, I am very interested to see, like, I would love to know, like, that part of the story of this fucking gentleman who's never done a like lick of work in his damn life is like, I'm gonna stroll on over here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna booby trap this whole area and no one will catch me because I'm a student of hanging. <laughs> like, yeah, well, he just he's not he so smart. 
Uh, clearly, he did not plan his uh, his sabotage well enough, because... Clearly not. Obviously, he got busted. <laughs> I mean, really, the fact that he thought he could just do that is silly to me in the first place. Yeah. But thanks, Ed. Thank you, Ed Oppenheimer. Yeah. For sharing that story. That was fun. Um, I had never read it. Clearly, like, I, I've i seen too many uh, retellings of it. <laughs> Well, and as as we were going through it, I found myself thinking, I feel like I've never read the story. Yeah. I know I've never read the story, but I definitely found myself going, I I feel like I kind of know where this is headed. I yeah. um, And I imagine that's just because stories like this, they tend to, like, you pick them up through osmosis. Yeah. It's like, even if you've never seen, it's very much like even if you've never seen Star Wars. Or Titanic. Or Titanic. <laughs> or This one's never seen Titanic. <laughs> um... Or, uh, yeah, but you, or like, whatever, like, you know, you know what's, like, you get a feel for what's going to happen. You know the hook. You because, know, like, yeah. Because that storyline has been referenced so often. It's, it's popular, um, like, it's, a uh, um, what's the word? It's, uh, um, it's, uh, something culture. It's, uh. Pop culture? Pop culture! <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> Well, it's it's like that the story, the themes, the ideas have infiltrated the public consciousness. Yeah. Luke, um, I am your father. I hadn't seen Star Wars until I was like almost 21. And I knew and then I finally saw all the Star Wars like at once and was I knew like I was crying all the time. I was very moved by them and like I really mm-hmm. enjoyed them, but there were so many like Things that I knew were was coming. Yeah, I knew I knew those things were coming because I lived in the world and had friends and like watched TV shows and yeah. movies and yeah. I'm gonna jump ahead of the um, the Twitter corrections. Uh, um, the line is not Luke. I am your father. I know. The line is no. I know. I am your father. I know, but the the one that always gets quoted is Luke. Is Luke, I am your I am father. Your father. Yep. Because I re- distinctly remember when that happened and I saw the movie, I was like, that's not the line I heard. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they, I made a comment like, wait. Did they change this line they, for the movie? Is this the, because re- at that point, all the new ones had just come out. So I was like, is this like the new version? <laughs> and my friend was like, no, that's just, people, always, I think they people put Luke in there to put it in context. To put it into context, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the thing they did change for the remakes, though, is Han shot first. What? In the scene in the bar where it's Han Solo and Greedo, the little green alien. Yeah. And like... Oh, I've heard this story. Yeah. So in the remakes, they, they, when they, they like re-edited the thing together so that Greedo takes a shot at Han and then Han shoots him. That's not how it goes. Yeah. Han pulls his gun and shoots Greedo first. So it's like the Hamilton Burr like fight. <laughs> kind of, but it's also like Han's kind of a dick. Well, yeah, Harrison Ford's an asshole. <laughs> I think that is the that so, so full circle. Harrison Ford. So I stand by casting Harrison Ford I as stand, Peyton Farquhar. You know, Harrison Ford at like thirty-five when he was doing Indiana. I and also Han Solo. stand by casting Harrison Ford as Ambrose Bierce. I. I would like to see him as Ambrose Bierce now. Absolutely. So, Harrison Ford's agent or someone... Uh, hey, Harrison, if you're listening, and know I know you are, are. <laughs> um, I got a movie idea for you. 
All right. Uh, I feel like that was... That was fun. R- random. Uh, that was a really <laughs> random tangent. Uh, I like it. <laughs> uh, so, um, I hope you enjoyed that story. I hope you don't feel like we... Um, ruined the ending. I'm ruined sorry. Ruined it too much, mutilated it too much, made light of it too much. Uh, um, we do say in the tagline right at the beginning that we try, try to read the books that look really good on your shelf, and sometimes we screw them up. Um, <laughs> sometimes we give away the ending, even though we ourselves don't know the ending. So I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, share this with your friends. Um, think about giving us a subscribe. That yeah, helps a ton. Like us, Listen to our other episodes because that helps us a ton. Yeah. Um, you can track us down on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We've got a website, campfireclassicspodcast.com. Uh, you can, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can become a patron of 5050 Arts Production, which is our sort of parent production company. Yeah, um, just listen and share and give us more suggestions. Sure, and, yeah. And, yeah, tell That's your friends. The big thing, listen, like, and share it with yeah, people. That helps us out more than... Anything else. More than anything else. Yeah. Um, just give it a listen. Uh, if you didn't like this... Um, feel free to send us an email and let us know what we could do better. Yeah, we love Or, that. better yet, share it with three people that you hate <laughs> and subject them to something that you think they won't like. <laughs> you know good? what? I think that's it. All right. Is this that episode 12? Th- this has been episode 12 of Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I had to stop. We had to pay for it. Fair use. See you next time.